0: Welcome to a rather newsy episode of Name Drop San Diego. This week, we've got a 2020 Pulitzer
1: Prize winner on the show.
0: We're very excited about this and hope you'll enjoy hearing from Anthony Davis, who has been named the 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner in music. I'm Abby Hamblin, and I am not a Pulitzer Prize winner. It could still
1: happen. (laughs) I'm Christy Totten, and you're listening to Name Drop San Diego from the San Diego Union Tribune.
0: Anthony Davis is well-known for his talent in many areas, including orchestral music and jazz. He teaches at UC San Diego, and his work in opera has explored some well-known events in history.
1: Davis won the Pulitzer for composing The Central Park Five, an opera about five Black and Latino teenagers in New York City who were wrongly convicted after a white woman was attacked in Central Park in 1989.
0: The case never lost its relevance, and there is even a recent Netflix series about it called When They See Us.
1: Davis's other operas include X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, Tanya, a story based on the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, and Amistad, about a slave ship in 1839 and the U.S. court case surrounding it.
0: Davis called us from home in the week following the Pulitzer Prize announcement to talk about his interesting career in music and much more. First question we have to ask is How are you doing? Everything going okay with you this week?
2: Yeah, everything's fine. It's great. Um... Yeah, so so it's been been quite a quite a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: congratulations.
2: Well, thank you, thank you. It's it's been exciting. Also, hearing from a lot of people I haven't heard from in a long time.
1: Oh, I bet. So, I read that you found out you won the Pulitzer when a friend called you during a Zoom meeting. What was that like?
2: That was pretty funny because um, I was on a I was having a faculty meeting uh, for the music department at UCSD, and I. Um, I noticed there was a phone call from New York, so I thought, well, may I just pick it up for a second? Say I'm busy, and I'll call him back. So I picked up, and Franco Terry, who's from New Music USA, said, "Well, congratulations!" And I said, "For what?" And they said, "You you, you won the Pulitzer Prize in music." And and I said, "What?" And then, then I then I called my wife Cindy, and I said, uh, "Cindy, I won the Pulitzer Prize," and and um, I didn't realize I had left the mic on on the Zoom. So,
1: (laughs) I (laughs) I bomb
2: the the meeting.
1: (laughs) So that's amazing. You really find out at the moment it's announced. They don't like give you a heads up beforehand.
2: No, there's no heads up. I mean, I think it's just announced to the press. It's just like it, and so the press knows, and then uh, you know people find out from from that from the press release. But but uh, yeah, so it's kind of a very different way to find out than you know having a private call from someone or something.
0: What a day. I just, I just, I can't imagine what that was like. Just a full day of excitement, probably. And, and sense. I mean, we're talking to you now about
2: it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it was, it was exciting. It was, it was pretty, pretty, it was, it was amazing, you know, and it, and it caught caught me completely by surprise. I didn't know what was coming or what was
0: happening. Okay. So let's listen to a clip from this award-winning opera. The Pulitzer Prize board described the Central Park Five as a courageous operatic work marked by powerful vocal writing and sensitive orchestration that skillfully transforms a notorious example of contemporary injustice into something empathetic and hopeful. Here's Kevin's aria from the Central Park Five. So hopefully now you can picture a little bit better what the Central Park Five is all about. But for more about its composer, we actually reached out to some of the performers uh, from the premiere of the Central Park Five, and they wanted to say a few words as well. So first we have Bernard Holcomb, who played Kevin Richardson.
2: It does my heart good to know that Mr. Anthony Davis has been awarded uh, such a prestigious award, and he absolutely deserves it not only for the Central Park Five, but for all of his other compositions. It was a high honor to be involved in the Central Park Five and to be involved in a piece that brings social justice really to the forefront of operatic culture and really to the world. Uh, Mr. Davis is a genius, a compositional genius. The things that he used, the different textures, the instrumentation, it's really high level and it's at the forefront of where I think we need to be today. So Mr. Davis, I applaud you, I appreciate you, and I honor you. Oh, wow. Thank you.
0: Yeah, and then next we have uh, Orson Van Gay, who plays Raymond Santana.
3: Oh, great, Orson. Anthony Davis's music um, really encapsulates the entire experience that one would feel uh, as if they were there. Uh, it is cinematic, it is classical um fused with jazz, um, polyphonic, Um, it is really uh, a a reflection of um, beautiful writing um, that is appropriate for our times. If I didn't say before, it's extremely relevant, his work, it's applicable to the American experience, and um, all those who were involved in this production are richer for and I think it opens up uh, the opportunity to tell more stories that perhaps were swept under the rug. Anthony Davis is extremely gracious with his time. Um, Seldom do you get to work with a living composer. As an operatic tenor, um, you're interpreting uh, work that was done by those who are no longer here. He was there through the entire process and really infused his spirit uh, in every line that we that we sang, it challenged us as musicians, um, and allowed us to really uh, fully bloom uh, these roles. Um, it was heart wrenching, to say the least. Um, it was probably one of the most important works I have done to date. I am forever grateful for Anthony Davis uh, allowing this story to be told, um, and. I'm extremely blessed to be able to have premiered this role and I look forward to collaborating with him again and telling this story which is very necessary for the healing of our nation. Thank you, Orson.
1: <laughs> yeah, wow, what beautiful messages. Um why did you decide to tackle this subject, the the story of the Central Park Five?
2: Well, uh originally Uh, Kevin Maynard, who runs the uh, Trilogy Opera in Newark, New Jersey, African-American company, uh, uh, called me up and said he had a libretto about the Central Park Five uh, uh, by uh, Richard Wesley. And would I be willing to read the libretto to see if, if I could recommend a composer to write it? So I, I read the libretto and I called him back and said, I'd like to write it. <laughs> nice. So, so, uh, and, and I was, I was very excited with how Richard treated the, the, the initial treatment of the, of the, of the piece and of, uh, the Central Park five. And I realized that was really important subject, you know, sort of the beginning of the black lives matter movement. You could trace to the Central Park five and, and, uh, I felt that it had a lot of compositional challenges for me too, in terms of the music, uh, and I, I was excited about the the idea of working on it. The original libretto, the, the first version I read, didn't have the character Donald Trump in it, so I, so I first thing I said to him, "You have to have Donald Trump in it." <laughs> wow! <laughs> because he had a mask figure that sort of stood was stood in for all everything, all the kind of. Racial animus that was in uh, around the around the around the subject, and I thought that we should also have a the of wo- a, a woman DA because it was I think it's important that it was a woman who was a DA, assistant DA, and the and the prosecution, and then also important to to have uh, Trump in the opera as well.
0: The events of the Central Park Five took place in 1989. So, what do you think still resonates most about it, or, or what more is there to learn from reliving it through an opera in 2019 or 2020 or in the years ahead?
2: Well, because those it's a recurring story, it's a recurring nightmare. It's something that that keeps happening you know that uh, the terror that teenagers and young, young African American males particularly feel and females too when women, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that that you're always at risk you know um and from authorities and and those who 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 can leap to the wrong conclusion and so i thought that that was that was certainly very relevant and something that af- we as african americans live every day and uh so i thought that that was an important part of the story to tell and also with uh, including the character of trump in the uh opera because that that really was the beginning of his political career you know how he Sort of built his whole career on the fact of uh, of exploiting racial tensions and racial division, and you see that today.
1: The the pandemic, you know, has definitely exposed um, some inequalities that have, of course, always been there, but they're now brought to light for you know various reasons that you've mentioned. Do you have hope that uh, by exposing these or highlighting them now, they'll improve?
2: Yeah, well, I think so. You have to always, I think. As an artist, you have to bring light to things. You have to show things in the real light. I mean, also in this case of the Central Park Five, I really wanted the audience to identify with the five, to imagine that they are one of the five or one of their children is one of the five. And and that, that could reach across the racial lines, you know, in terms of, you know, that that identification, you know, the sense of, as we realize, as we, we kind of experience empathy we it, it it I think can can help change the attitude of people toward uh toward issues of social justice, and that to realize that uh you know it this you know the issues of social injustice didn't didn't end when Obama became president you know <laughs> I maybe mean, we're not in a post racial society I think no one is arguing that today
0: getting to know you a little bit more, the person behind this wonderful music, how did you come to know and love opera?
2: well uh <clears throat> that's interesting first i was i was enamored of the idea of opera when i was uh uh tenth grade I lived in italy i lived in Torino, italy and uh, and i unfortunately i didn't get to go to an opera then i was we we were gonna we were almost gonna go to la Scala to see an opera but i think it didn't didn't quite happen but mm-hmm. i uh but i when i was, when I was in school in italy I, I had this wonderful teacher who uh taught a philosophy class and uh he introduced me to works by Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, and particularly *The Birth of Tragedy* by Nietzsche, *In um, Either/Or* by Kierkegaard, and so. And both of them taught, discuss opera and the issue of opera, and particularly with Nietzsche, I became I fascinated with the idea of uh, the what he described as the binary of the uh, Dionysian and the Apollonian. You know the art of form and the art of, you know, in kind of a passion uh, in, in the spirit of revolution. So when I thought about it, he was trying to, in a way, set the stage for his defense of Wagner, and we, which he, he would later repudiate Wagner, but but uh, I thought that what he was describing was the potential really of more of American music than of German music because I thought of the idea of the uh, our African heritage—that's part of Amer- part of our music—and then also the European influence. So that, so I thought that an an ideal op- American opera would combine the African and the European, and and so so also bring the uh, bring the the uh, the concept of the of the improviser into the opera as well. The, the improvisational traditions we have here. So. So that was the kind of philosophical platform that 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 sort of really brought me to to be, become interested in opera, and then then when I went to Yale, uh, went to college, I um, took a class in nineteenth-century music that was taught by a Wagner scholar. So I was introduced to Wagner's operas, and uh, so I became very interested in that, and then I. I subsequently, you know, started when I moved to New York. I started going to uh, see awesome operas, and you know, particularly Berg's uh, Lulu and Vltsek, and uh, that. And then my wife now is my wife. My, my wife an opera singer, so she introduced me a lot to all the Italian operas, etc. You know,
1: one thing that strikes me about your work, and maybe it's just because I'm not that familiar with contemporary opera, though, is how. Um, you tackle, you know, news stories, stories of racial injustice. Is that unique, or am I just not very well versed?
2: Well, I think it. I think it was unique at the time. I, I mean, I when I did X was my first opera in 1986. There wasn't really anything like that. I mean, a Philip Glass, of course, had done uh, Sadia Graha, which is about Gandhi, and. Uh, uh, but I was interested, I think Malcolm X was a very different kind of figure, more of a polarizing figure within America. Um, and I was really, I was excited to do it because, uh, in a way, I look at him as a tragic hero, you know, a hero, uh, 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 certainly within the African American community. And, uh, and I was excited to, to tell that story because it kind of was an epic story, you know, of uh, transformation. And uh, so that sort of so set me on this path, you know, to do to do operas that engage in these subjects, and I did Tanya, which was more of a comic version of it, and then I did Amistad, which was, of course, about the Slave Rebellion and the Trial, and uh, Wakanda's Dream, which is sort of dealt with Native American story, and then uh, now Central Park Five.
0: I'm curious what it's actually like to write an opera. Like I've been to a few, you know, what is it what goes on behind the scenes? Like what is a day in the life of Anthony Davis writing an opera? Does the libretto come first and then the music? Is it different every time?
2: Well, usually the like? libretto comes first. I mean, I found that most uh, X it was ahe some of the X was written before the libretto, and that made it harder to do. So I learned that it's it's better better to have a some kind of coherent idea from the libretto already. And then, then when you write the music, it 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 kind of makes more sense because also you to just make up words to me, unless you're Ira Gershwin, you know it's like, <laughs> I mean it's very it's very hard to it's very hard to do that and and to tell a story really, so uh, so I usually like to work with having a libretto written or at least having knowing what the an outline and a structure. And then uh, working from word to word, you know, through in a, in a almost a linear fashion. Um, so I've, I've, I I I prefer to work in that way. Um, and then I I do edit the libretto as I as I compose. You know, sometimes to make things work, and also to th- sometimes if I'll, I'll call up press, I see I need more words here, or I need I I make cuts or set, et cetera. There are different things that happen because of the expedience of what's going on in the music.
0: Yeah. yeah, I'm particularly interested in um, Wakanda's Dream. I, I, I know that lots of uh, a lot of your operas focus on uh, current events or historic events, uh, but this one, it seems like there was sort of an inspiration there from uh, the Native American community. And I just wondered, like, did the sounds of, of that community make it into that opera, or how did you approach to such unique sort of genres yeah, did, of sound?
2: definitely did. I mean, I attended, I, I had the good fortune of going to a powwow so I went to uh, Ponca Pow Wow in Niobrara, Nebraska, which is the northern part of Nebraska near the Missouri River, near South Dakota. And um, so I witnessed, I heard a lot of the honor dances. I saw the different, you know, different, and, and now powwows are more intertribal. They're, you know, other tribes participate that are not necessarily from that area. Uh, but I was particularly focused on the Ponca music. So uh, and also, I had the chance to attend uh, an all-night teepee talk with a chief of the Lakota. So I was, I, I was, and he he told me about his his vision quest when he was a child and how you know he was thro- naked in the woods, having to fend for himself, in, at, at night. And so that was very exciting, and and also learning more about Native American culture. And and Wakanda refers to the the creation myth of uh, the Ponca and and, the Wakanda is Wakanda dreamed the world. So in other words, the the world is Wakanda's dream, you know, what happens. So in a way, you can look at Wakanda's dream as fate. You know, what's fated to happen because he he sees everything that is happening. And in Lakota, it's Wonka Tonka is the name. But in uh, in Ponca, it's Wakanda. and. so it's funny that they they had the movie. They had Wakanda with an A, W A K A N D A, but it was Wakanda's right. actually W A K O N D A, the Native American one. Um, and so uh, that was that was very exciting to me. And and uh, I'm part Native American too. So I was I had never really explored that aspect of my culture, you know. And my grandmother used to be really upset that I, I had I always kind of identified as African American. And uh, she used to be get upset with me because I I was identified that way. So, but but I but I'm also part Native American too. And so I um, so to to go to 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 witness and be part of that culture. And then um, uh, I had a good fortune when I when I was in uh, Nayarit. I met this um, woman who had a child who was uh, you know when he would dance at the powwow, he always had black feathers. So I asked her about him and she said, he wears black feathers because he has sight and he sees ghosts and he speaks wow. to people from the past. So that became the basis for the whole opera, you know, how I, the opera evolved. I, I had a child who, could, who had sight, who could see the past, who was, who had a, who was always talking with, with Standing Bear. So the opera could address both Native Americans today and the, and the past, you know, also uh, the Standing Bear story at the same time. So that was kind of interesting. And, my, and I worked with a wonderful poet, uh, Yusef Komanyaka on that project.
1: Did working on that project uh, bring you closer to that part of your identity?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I think it did. I think it did. And uh, and I feel, uh, uh, and and it was really, really, it was really great. They also, when we opened the show in Omaha, a medicine man came in and, and uh uh and and purified this the space first so so they did that and and then i and i had a a great time uh visiting with um not only the Ponca, but the uh omaha and as and the lakota as well so um and a lot of, and the tribes really embraced the show so i, was, I had a, had a chance to to meet and and and, and get to know a lot of the people involved in 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 in, uh, in that part of the world, and and even though my my heritage is more Cherokee, which is much a they call it, they call me landsman because I'm a it's, it's Cherokee, but so that's that's kind of um, but it was it was fascinating for me to 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 learn learn more about it.
0: So, how do you put that influence into an opera? What does that actually sound like? In, in well, uh,
2: it's it's we've put it in a number of ways. For one thing, um, I actually use the um, honor dance, uh, Ponca honor dance, ends the ends the opera. The, as the opera ends, they they are doing honor dance. That comes from when I was at the at the um, Powwow. When someone dies, they what they do is the the chief walks with the widow. This man had died and they and they they're arm in arm and they walk in a clockwise fashion around toward the totem and uh the whole tribe gets behind them and they put money into the hat that the the chief is holding and they get behind him so it's very moving to me because you see the whole community get behind this woman who's lost her husband and and you know give donations to them and and so that was great. so the opera actually ends with that kind of recreating that moment what i saw at the saw in the uh, and i actually wrote i transcribed um uh, music punk the music of the Ponca, the honor dance and then what i what i did also was um i uh used some of some of the we we process i worked with my friend earl howard who's a wonderful musician who works with uh electronic music and we processed a lot of the the that stuff stuff and that sort of becomes a little part of the electronics of the score that's behind it. Uh the, the opera opens with a vision quest, the main characters in a vision quest. And and so when you go into the before you take when you even before you take your seat, the sound is in the room. You know, it's uh, I had a friend, uh my friend Liz Phillips walked in the woods with a uh with two microphones on a helmet, so, so she could get a binaural recording of the woods. So you hear hear the wood, you know, the woods in a completely different way, as if you're immersed in it. You're in it, so you're, you feel as if you're in the woods with with that person. So I wanted to have that that feeling uh, of that, and then, then I used processed uh, coyote cries because there's a the character is obsessed with a coyote, uh, so the coyote appears in Know, kind of electronically processed coyote cries in different ways appears as part of the sound world in the music
1: and so you collected that sound at those actual places
2: uh well we we, we find <laughs> we cheat a little bit we found some coyote cries <laughs> on calls on uh online and we used that and processed it so we use that so so it's integrated into music you know mm. into because we well, I'm kind of interested in this idea that sound and music the but generally you know in movies when you see sound effects and you see music uh, but i think of them as integrated into one thing that sound sound effects and music are 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 all part of the same thing
1: Mm -hmm. your operas wakanda versus the central park five take place in very different settings how do you go about um creating a sense of place you mentioned how you did it for wakanda a little bit but for example for central park five did you use any sounds from Harlem? Did you? Um, how did you approach that?
2: Yeah, well, I also work with Earl Howard on on Central Park Five. He worked in both projects, so um, so that, that was so that was a very important part of it. I mean, part of it is I think one of the things you do as an opera composer, you have to give a sense of time and place. That's one of the main things. I mean, it's a, the way uh it's you, you way you do in it and film scoring. They do that as well, but but for me, it meant creating Harlem. You know, what is Harlem? You know, Harlem is an imagined place, you know, this, this in a way the nostalgic Harlem of you know, the jazz era Harlem, you know, Duke Ellington's Harlem. It's certainly that. And I did in my music, I, there are a lot of references to Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn and Charles Mingus, And so, it's, so kind of, kind of capture what you know har- the, that nostalgic Harlem of the past, and then the Harlem of that present of nineteen eighty nine Harlem, you know where where hip hop was was just starting to to really go in the mainstream and be a whole hip hop revolution was happening coming from the Bronx. So so uh, I realized you know when, when for example when the kids went into um, the park, they they this whole. Uh, they, the newspapers picked up on one of their things. They, they they said that they were wilding in the park, right? You know, when they were creating chaos in Central Park, there was there what's called wilding, and wilding actually was that they were they, they didn't hear they misheard what they were they were actually saying. They were singing a song called Wild Thing, which was a total mm-hmm. anthem of, of that was popular in 1989. So you see that the emergence of hip hop is as, as being important so that that was part of the musical landscape too um when i when they go into the park in the opera i i did a, a i i i kind of did an homage to uh uh parliament funk funkadelic song uh, who's got the funk so i i did it with um with uh uh yeah, with, with we are the freaks
3: hmm.
2: and as they go into the park and and i was trying to almost the way hip hop always borrowing from the past you always they always sampling music of the past uh you hear you know you know riffs and rhythmic gestures and and vamps and stuff from other pieces you know they're mining it always so i so i kind of did a parody a little bit of 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 a p-funk anthem so this so this idea that music to create this space is you know the space of what what where they were coming from you know of of, uh, you know, also the fact that what Trump was reacting to was the, this hip-hop revolution, which was deemed, they thought of as a threat to the gentrification of New York. And, and uh, so a lot of, uh, so 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 the, when, when they were putting the Five in prison, they were actually, I, th- I think they were putting Radio Rahim from Do the Right Thing in prison, you know, the, the, the character in Spike Lee with the, the boombox, um uh, and uh i, I uh, for example when you see the when I saw videos of the protests of white protests about the Central park five condemning the central park five, they had posters saying do the right thing so so you know it's just so the way in which art culture music all intersects with 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 what what uh, what's what's happening on the in in terms of of our, you know, society, it's all, all integrated. It's all part of the same thing.
0: Do you remember that time in 1989 and where you were and what your experience was? I was, from I was all in all New York. Unfold? I lived in wow. New York.
2: I lived in, on, in Manhattan Plaza on 43rd and 9th, and, and, and 9th Avenue. I was, I, 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 4th and 10th Avenue I was there. And I, so I remember it vividly. Yeah, and I followed the followed the events on the trial and and other things, you know, Then I saw you know you know interviews on New York One. So a lot of things that we were depicted in the opera, I remember seeing it when it happened.
0: Yeah, well, I thought it was really amazing that one of the performers described what it's like to work with a living composer and how it's pretty rare for them. I, I, I just wanted to ask, what did you take away from working on this project, uh, the Central Park Five, and working with those performers?
2: Oh, I love working. This is one of the best casts I've ever had. I mean, they were incredibly dedicated musicians and singers with really special gifts and also how they gained together as a group. I mean, particularly the five, they were hang out together all the time, and, and, the, and the camaraderie they had. They all watched the Netflix series together. <laughs> you know, it was it was really a great experience working with them, uh, and uh, I think we 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 came together as a team. It was a certain you know camaraderie that came out of that, you know, and and also because. It reflected on their lives that all of them had, you know, as African-Americans, we all had experiences when we've been targeted by police. I mean, it's nothing, uh, I mean, not to the degree that that Central Park Five did, but I remember remember my first experience coming to California, coming to L.A. was I was uh, stopped by a policeman. Um, This is when I was with my former wife and when a friend, an African-American friend of mine, and we were just driving into L.A., Uh, And we were and the guy put his alarm on the car, stopped the car and came in and asked my Caucasian wife whether whether she was okay. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, why was why would he do that? You know, because she was with two African-American men. You could ask if she's okay.
1: (laughs) Wow. But you're laughing about it. So
2: well no, it's it's funny now. It's it's right. it's funny now at the time it was kind of terrifying, you know. It's like right. I mean, I am sure if you were really mad at me, I hate it to say if she said no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny.
1: Um but, did have you ever met the Central Park Five?
2: Yes, I have. I met all of them. I met them in, in Los Angeles, they came for the ACLU and ACLU luncheon honoring them. And so actually my whole cast for, of the opera went to the launching as well as the cast of the Netflix series. So hmm. there were, so there were 15 people,
0: <laughs>
2: the 15 were there, you know, the five, the original five and the five <laughs> from Netflix and the five from my opera, you know, so that was, that was fantastic. And I got, got to, got to meet and talk to all, all of them.
0: What did they think, know, think of having an opera about their story? I
2: think they were tickled by it. They were to think about, you know, how they would sound, you know, to, to be, have someone sing their character and, and, um, I spoke a lot, particularly, particularly with Yusef Salaam. I got to know, I knew Yusef's sister before. So we had, we had, we, we had a connection prior to that. So, so it was, it was really great to, and they were really excited about it. So I hope they, they didn't really get a chance to see the opera, but I hope to do it, you know, again so that they can see it because they were, they were, they were great and it was great to, to, um, to meet them and, uh. Also, uh, the ACLU luncheon was so illuminating to see the work that the ACLU does, and uh, you know, dealing with the immigrant issues and how detainees are treated, and uh, all the all the thi- all the things that they have to they've had to do, all across, you know, around our country to, to these days. You know, um, you know the the assault of, of our you know civil rights that that has been part of the Trump administration for this for the last you know three years.
1: I read one of your um, or I heard one of your performers say something really beautiful about the work, which is that bringing the subject matter to the opera, you know, puts this story in front of eyes and ears that might not otherwise pay attention to it. And then the opposite is true. Putting this kind of story into opera brings people to the opera who may not have been particularly interested in the genre before. Was that your intention to be a bridge in this way?
2: Well, I mean, I'm not... Consciously, I think. They, I think it's important that I I I love that that happens because, um, and I I I also I, I think from the beginning I thought about you know bringing a new audience to opera. You know that that opera uh, that if you could write opera about contemporary subjects, engage in subjects that that people really care about, that 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 that, that could bring them into the opera. You know, um, and that happened when I first hit X, I mean, um, at New York City Opera. Actually, it was the most popular modern opera that was ever uh, performed at New York City Opera in the history of the company. And and the reason was, I mean, when I was, I remember the opening night at X, it was the 50% of the house was African-American and it was sold out. It was unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> so the idea that 50%, that, that that many African-Americans would come to Lincoln Center for a show, I mean, it was very, very, really, really, really exciting, and they were actually buses from Harlem coming down to Manhattan to to, uh, to Midtown Manhattan for the show. So uh, I thought that was really uh, exciting and, and an exciting opportunity. I don't think City Opera really capitalized on it, unfortunately. In the future, you know, I think mm. they could have done more, you know, afterward.
0: Now let's take a listen to a clip from X: The Life and Times of Malcolm X.
2: I've shined your shoes, I've sold your dope, hold your bootleg, laid with us lost
0: hope. But the crime is mine,
3: I will do your time.
0: Well, when you did the Malcolm X opera in 1986, the Long Beach opera describes it as the beginning of a new American genre. So opera on contemporary political subject. And so they described you as really paving the way there, but what would you like to see with the future of opera and what do you continue to try to do uh, within opera?
2: Well, I think, I think the future. I mean, there are organizations like Opera America is really involved in uh, uh, presenting opera and seeing opera. You know, develop in the future. Uh, I think I think it has a very promising future. I mean, if we, if we let go of uh, not I mean not to say we shouldn't do traditional operas. I love you know Puccini or Mozart or whatever. That's great. But I think that also there's a there's a role for for more cutting edge new operas that. That approach more controversial subjects, and also uh, uh, also new technologies for opera. I mean, this whole, for example, the for example, being in how we are in place today. You know, using Zoom or whatever. But you could do opera with you know in in different locations simultaneously. You know, or you could do uh, have a piece that has you know um, telematic ideas of you know, having different places at the same time, et cetera. So there are, there are all kinds of ways in which we can expand on opera and try new things. And I think, I think there's an audience for that wants to see new things, wants to see new approaches to this genre, you know, not that are not just bound to what our uh, opera was in the past, but looking toward what it could be. And uh, so I think, uh, so that that's exciting to me. I mean, also to make opera American, I mean, that's very important to me because, uh, I mean, take this, what it has was a European form and make it into ours, make it into something that represents our culture and our music, you know, and I think that's that's really important. And uh, for me, that's been, you know, definitely bringing jazz and, and the influence of African-American culture into opera. And I think that that's very it's very important for the future.
1: Do you find resistance to that ever? I mean, I've heard that said, right? Like, oh, opera is more effective in Italian, or or whatever. Are people oh, resistant sure. to that you idea? Oh, sure, you
2: resistance. Oh, I remember when I <laughs> when X was reviewed. I mean, I uh, I mean, the New York Times critic at the time, Donald Hanahan, wrote, uh, "Well, you know, opera opera really shouldn't deal with these subjects because it really everything in opera should be about love." <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, said, I said okay okay cool you know but but yes I, I said well i i my my retort was also you know the relationship of malcolm you know paternal relationship to elijah muhammad was about love and also about realizing your father isn't who he, you think he is sort of like star wars you know but you know, but uh so so it was it was it was it was actually funny to me you know to read sometimes reviews that are weird like that you know you you have to laugh it's just like because they're they're so tied to you know what what they think you know opera was and not what it could be you know and and also um so his resistance he was he he didn't hate it he didn't like x and he didn't like nixon in china he was opposed to the whole thing you know (laughs) so so i think uh but i i think it's a it was a fertile ground because what it is is um these are also stories that are universal too. At the same time, their uh, Malcolm's story was a tragedy, you know, uh, and he's a classic tragic hero. So, uh, and I think that that's that's why it, that's why it works as an opera too, because opera also deals with just certain kind of archetypes, you know, uh, and certain uh, certain ways of. Uh, um, and I thought, I think sometimes you know, when when I look at opera this. I always tell my students that the, that the music has to have bloodlust. You know, something about it that that it has to be some consequence that justifies it being an opera.
1: Ooh. Well, I think judging by your Pulitzer, the work you've been doing works.
0: So you showed them. Yeah, I like the thought of a Zoom opera or something, as you mentioned technology.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was thinking of, uh, well, for example, there's a Bergman movie. Bergman movie, like Face to Face or... or the, the the it's very intense where they just focus on a face of a character. It was Liv Ullman and Bibi Anderson, I think, and I and you could something like that could work as a kind of zoom thing, you know, like where you're 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 looking in the screen and having an intense dialogue with someone. And then in the, in the theater, you could see it as two screens of two people, huge screens of two faces facing each other. You know, it'd be kind of kind of interesting like kind of psychological different kind of psychological drama you know
0: Yeah I'd watch that it uh it sounds like you got your next project figured out <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah well I like to do some I like to do psychological drama sometimes that's something I always wanted to do It's it's so funny cuz people pigeonhole you sometimes say oh you just do political you do political. so one, one, one day I was I met Ian Campbell about a, several, a number of years ago when he was running San Diego Opera and I was trying to convince him to do Commissioned me to do, and I had the rights to do. Uh, Suddenly last summer, as an opera, which was the uh, Tennessee oh, Williams, wow. and uh, so he said, "Well, your music, your music wouldn't be good for psychological stories. It's it's for political." I said, "What? Okay." Oh. <laughs> I, I mean, it's that's so funny. You always have to be wary, you know. You just not just, you know, when you try to you try to because you always have to find something new for you as a composer or as an artist, you have to find something that challenges you to do something different too, you know? So that's, but I think that, uh, yeah, I hope I, hopefully I'll do that someday. Cause that's a, be a I think a great opera too.
0: Yeah. Do you have anything in the works right now or anything new you're working on?
2: I am working on things, but I don't have anything. definite. I mean, this COVID thing has kind of put a hold on a lot of things. Uh, I'm doing, um, I, I want to do a children's opera, uh, I'm working with a group in San Diego called Bodhi Tree on an opera uh, called Poncho Rabbit and the Coyote, and Poncho Rabbit is a young rabbit who lives in Mexico, and his father's a migrant worker in California. And his father doesn't come home for Christmas, so he tries to go to California to find his father. And the coyote, uh, in return for food, tries to help him negotiate the border and the border is guarded by snakes and i think an orange snapping turtle i'm going to add to that put an orange snapping turtle it. but anyway so so but i i wanted to tell the story kind of the border story through a uh, kind of the innocence of a children's story but but have a but have a historic kind of uh, uh, an opera about the issues of the border
0: Yeah that's uh that would be a pretty interesting local story definitely
2: Yeah well so we we're hoping to do it in San Diego and Tijuana too
0: as well yeah wow as well. well your work has been you know played and shown all throughout the country I mean Nebraska you talked about in New York City uh, but you're here in, in UCSD and you've worked there for 20 years now is yeah that?
2: 20 years yes
0: Yeah. what what appeals to you about San Diego why stay here and what do you like about it what
2: doesn't <laughs> <laughs> I mean no it's great I mean I lo- I love getting away I mean I was I moved here from New York in uh, end of 1997, and I was fried in New York. I you know in New York you you live and die with the New York Times. you're reading the New York Times every day and you know it's like and you know as an artist you're doing you're trying to do your thing and it's so competitive and just to get away from that and to be able to think and be able to realize and think about what you want to do in terms of your the direction of your art and also working with the wonderful wonderful students I've and colleagues I've had here at UCSD. And UCSD couldn't be more supportive of, you know, of, of of my work. And I think of many of my my colleagues, you know, so that that's been it's been a great experience being here. And uh, I, I doubt that I would have been able to achieve what I achieved if I hadn't come here.
1: What are some of your favorite things about San Diego, things that you do here that you could only do here?
2: Oh, well, I just I love walking. I, I go out and walk in the park and do all that stuff and uh and I well my son's was a baseball player is a baseball player so I used to go to his games all the time you know it's like from little league to uh travel baseball etc so it was it was a joy to just you know go like every day you know several days a week would be my wife and I would get ready and go to go to see, see him play um and then later when he went to Cal he went to University of California Berkeley I went to up there to see him play uh, so so I think that, you know, it's been, that's been, that's been wonderful. And, uh, and I have met some amazing colleagues here. You know, i work with Susan Naruki a lot, wonderful singer here at UCSD. I also work with um, Mark Dresser, a great bass player who's been my, my friend for like over 40 years, I guess almost 50 years. And uh, we, 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 we continue to perform together and play together. And, uh, You know, we're working with great students, too. So that's been, a bit, you know, going to concerts here at UCSD and hearing you know, hearing uh, the students develop their, their voice and find their voice in music. So that's really, that's been always been exciting.
0: Yeah, well, that's a great list of people there. And since this podcast is called Name Drop San Diego, we like to end the show by asking our guests to name drop someone in the community here who is meaningful to them or maybe who even deserves the spotlight. So is there... You know, out of all those amazing uh, musicians and people you worked with here, is there one person you'd like to mention?
2: Well, I would say Mark Dresser would be one. Uh, i mean, there's so many. It was Lei Lang, he's a big colleague of mine, composer. Uh, also, Susan a wonderful singer. I mean, I they're, they're, I can name three. I don't know if you want one, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know. But 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 I think you know they they have, they've, they they contribute so much to San Diego and um, you know our our vital artists on the. On the world stage, you know, and I think, uh, you know, they have a lot to offer.
0: Sorry, you have to just pick one of them. I have to pick <laughs> just Mark. kidding, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'll,
2: I'll pick Mark. I'll okay, pick Mark no. Dresser. I'll pick Mark. I mentioned him first.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This has been so interesting, and it's been great to talk to you and find out the person, more about the person behind the prize. Okay, yeah. great. Thank well, you for thanks
2: spending. so much. Yeah, it was great to talk to you.
1: Thank you for listening to Name Drop San Diego. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us.
0: Next week, we'll hear from Shilpi Somaya Gouda, a New York Times bestselling author. We'll talk about her latest book, The Shape of Family, her writing process, and what she's been cooking in quarantine. And if you know someone
1: that we should interview, drop us a line at namedropsd at gmail.com or find us on social media at namedropsd. See you next week. Bye.